Psalm number four. To the chief musician on Nuganoth, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Salah. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Salah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Amen. So we come now uh, this evening uh, to the second Davidic psalm of the Psalter. And we understand that this particular psalm, some of them we can date, we manage to have a clear uh, dating or at least a clear historical uh, um, date point in Psalm 3 it happened after or when his uh, son Absalom rose up in rebellion against him. And Psalm 4, we can also date to some degree of certainty that it was A, during his kingship and B, towards the end of his uh, uh, reign because the thoughts of the future temple worship were clearly impressed upon David's mind, as we read in Chronicles and, and Kings, um, that, or should I say Samuel and Chronicles. It's very clear that he is considering uh, this new revelation that he has received, that Gad and Nathan have received regarding the, the changing of the tabernacle worship into temple worship. And it is in the temple worship where there was a chief musician. There was in the temple worship where they had uh, instruments, three instruments, permitted by the Lord and one of the clan of the Levites only allowed to play and sing. So in the lifetime of David was still part of the tabernacle period. But he was, um, as Moses was, Moses had received divine revelation as regard to revelation. Moses had received the pattern on the mount. But in a similar way, uh, David also, as we read the scriptures, uh, see that he also received a pattern of how things were to be set up uh, when the, as it were, the wandering tabernacle was to become the fixed temple. And so he has written it for him, for the use of the chief musician. And so this is an eye upon the near future uh, when Solomon, and it was in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, that he began the building of uh, the temple. And so it was a time before um, Asaph and the other musicians 
were set and appointed to actually carry out that work. But this is a, a preparation um, for that in the life of David before the tabernacle time. So that gives us a little bit of, a little bit of context uh, when we consider uh, this. Uh, we know from 1 Samuel chapter 27, 27 or 25, I believe, where we have that Davidic covenant given to the Lord, that from up that moment onwards, when, when David had said, I will build thee a house, and the Lord says, no, I will establish thy throne forever, uh, which we've looked at earlier. From off that moment onwards, of course, uh, we're thinking of, in that period, Psalm 4 is written. But coming to what Psalm 4 itself uh, is all about. It is a nugginoth. I think I'm not pronouncing the E, but I am. It's a very short E, like the English believe. It's a very short E, a schwa, if you want the technical word. Um, and a, a nugina or negina. Negina was a string, a string or a stringed instrument. And nugginoth is the plural, so stringed instruments. And so we're here we have this 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 psalm of David to the chief musician on stringed instruments, and then it begins with a petition. It begins with a, with a prayer, and that prayer moves. There's, there's quite a lot of movement within these eight verses. So we have a prayer moving on to a rebuke of the godless in his generation, maybe as a king rebuking the godless beneath him, maybe the godless in his own family. But the godless anyway, they're around him. And included in that rebuke, we find also words of instruction. Um, a number of words of instruction and comparison. And then he closes with a few thoughts that really resolve around this truth that even though the ungodly may have many temporary earthly comforts, they are not to be compared with the comforts and the blessings that the godly obtain from God by grace. Specifically then the blessings obtained from and through Christ, from that image that we have um, here in verse uh, 6, where it says, Lord, lift up the light of thy countenance, upon us and we hope in the coming weeks to consider something of the countenance of Christ when we look at the transfiguration uh, upon uh, another mount but here we see the blessed countenance of Christ which is the title of the, the study this evening the blessed countenance of Christ and we see firstly and I think we have about six brief points is the psalmist's closet the psalmist's closet in verse 1, his prayer closet that is. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And we see firstly then, very briefly, the revelation of saving faith. Because when he calls upon the Lord, he calls him the God of my righteousness. That He receives righteousness from God and as much as David might have understood, and he would have understood it from the scriptures, from Genesis uh, 17, when we see Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, that he would understand something of the only righteousness that we have is to be found in God and by faith with God. No other righteousness exists. And so he declares from the, from, from the get-go 
that God is his righteousness. So this God in, on whom he calls, he's now ho- uh, calling upon him to hear. Hear his prayer and he says, God, thou art my righteousness. It's a very, very, a very uh, clear uh, profession that he has no righteousness in and of himself. Uh, but his righteousness is to be found in God. And when he considers this God, who is the God of his righteousness, and of course we could say any righteousness that he may have after his conversion, is what we might call declarative righteousness, and which is another word for sanctification, that your life declares a righteousness which was not your own, and yet there's a life that's being led um, uh, which is by the power and the grace of God. But let me not make this a lecture on, on righteousness uh, this evening. But a revelation of saving faith, we see as he opens his uh, petition. And then secondly, we see a recollection of past deliverance. And this is a, a very important theme in the whole of the book of Psalms. And it's a very encouraging thing, that we, an example that we should take with us when we see it, be reminded of it is that we remember the times that the Lord has helped us and answered our prayers and saved us in the past and the way he has saved his people in the past to encourage us now and to give us the encouragement that he will answer us now. So he, he, he furthers that petition by saying, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. And again, this is this Hebrew language. This idea of being compressed, me being unable to escape, being unable to breathe. Uh, but the Lord, ha- Lord has given him room. He has given him breathing space. He's given him a place to flee to, as it were. Thou hast enlarged me uh, when I was in distress. And thirdly then, the request for present help. Based upon that recollection and upon that statement of saving faith, we heard, so have mercy upon me. And hear my prayer. There are some that would say that we, because we have mercy from God in Christ, why would we call God uh, to have mercy upon us? Because we need much of God's mercy. Because there is still so much that we uh, do against God, but we desire that mercy. We desire that, that blessed loving kindness of the Lord upon us. For he would continue to have mercy upon us. So is that not all dealt with in the cross of Christ? Yes. But it is righteous. It is righteous that those that know the Lord and sin against him would still call upon him uh, for mercy uh, towards them. And that it would be a different mercy. It would be a mercy that you're calling upon God as Father. O Father, chastise me not in thy hot wrath as opposed to God being a judge over your soul. So there's a difference, but it's still part of the fear of God. Father, I have sinned against thee. I know thy son. I should have known better. I've sinned against conscience, and I've sinned against knowledge. I've sinned against thee. Have mercy upon me. And, and that's as the coming before the Lord with, with, with a correct humility and a correct fear. So see, we've seen something of the psalmist's closet, but then we move on and see the psalmist's conflict. There's a real about face here that the Lord, that the David is is dealing with the Lord, and as it were, he immediately uh, turns around and faces the men. Shall we? Say, we could say, and we understand from the context, who are the very cause of the prayer. 
Why is he sending up these prayers? Why is he saying, Lord, help me, have mercy upon me? Well, because ye sons of men. Ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah, remember, selah is, is the idea. Uh, we could understand it. Uh, increasing the volume of the music, musical accompaniment to the singing of the psalm uh, in the temple. But in any case, there seems to suggest a ceasing of, of singing. And therefore, we can apply that in the sense of let's just consider what we've just said. There's now a moment just to recollect what has been said. There are two silas, um, or I suppose that technically that would be a suloth, but <laughs> that would be too much. But two silas in, uh, in this psalm. And if I remember, we'll have a quick glance at them when we get to verse Four. But what we see here, and I'm going to turn the order around, we see firstly a complaint, and then we see two rebukes. I'd like to look at the rebukes first. He, he rebukes these sons of men, who we can understand to be quite godless sons of men, not sons of God. He gives them two rebukes. Firstly, that they love vanity. That the emptiness of the world, the vanity of life, uh, is, is what they love. It's what they seek after. It's what they desire. And again, it links us back to Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Well, uh, similarly, people not of the heathen, but certainly of the people of God, uh, are loving vanity. They are loving the things of, we can say, of the world. The things that are temporary. They have their priorities wrong. Uh, They desire that which is empty and that which which dies a death quickly. Things that rust, money, pleasures, entertainment, status, all these things that are of the world and in the world are the things that these sons of men that he points to, they absolutely love and desire, they they follow after. And not only do they follow vanity in general, it also says that they seek after leasing. Now, leasing is a, it's a bit of an old word. It's related to the word lie. Um, and it is a word that means deceit. So they, they're seeking after, we could say, lying deceit. That's what they seek after. And this could be then a, a description of vanity. A description of what vanity is. Vanity is deceit. We, uh, and the more you read the, the Hebrew, when you come to Hebrew poetry, which would include Proverbs, uh, we have, uh, and our brother mentioned this example last week, um, he, the term is Hebrew parallelism, where you have two phrases, uh, very similar, but looking at the same thing from maybe two different angles, maybe two slightly different uh, wording, just to get us to understand the fullness of what the Lord wants to say. Um, and that is a, a common thing we see in the Hebrew language. How long will you love vanity? Now for some, it's lifelong. It's a lifelong love of vanity, having their heart fattened, having their necks stiffened, and having their eyes absolutely closed to what is true in life, what is the most important thing in life. And we'll consider that in a second when we'll see his complaint 
So they have a love of, uh, a long love of vanity and, and a long seeking after deceit. And that's also expressed in the fact that they turn David's glory into shame, which is his complaint. That one complaint that we see. What is this glory? Well, we could say, we could say well, that, is that glory not the righteousness that he receives from God? Part of it, yes. But if we look at Psalm 3 and verse 3, that will give us an answer. It says, But thou, Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. It's a, it's a, it's a word that the Lord uses to express who Jehovah is. To him, he, he is my glory. He is my righteousness. He is my glory. Having none of my own, but it's all been given to me. And so what do we say? What, how do we understand? Uh, they are turning his glory into shame. I think a clear understanding of these words then is, is that they are mocking David's religion. They're mocking David's faith. They're mocking him having faith in the Lord at all times, and, and yet that's what comes out of this whole psalm. Is that they're mocking him for the faith that gives him that great uh, comfort and makes the huge difference, that great contrast. And there is that contrast throughout this psalm, as there was a great contrast in Psalm 1 between the, the godly and the wicked. Again, we have that coming through here, um, that the Lord making a division of, 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 of people, uh, who by nature there is no division. He makes two where there was one. All fallen in Adam, all hating God, all sunken in sin, all under God's wrath, and yet then God, not then, but God had already made that division that we will see even in this psalm being pointed to again and again in different ways. But the stark contrast here in them loving vanity and seeking after leasing, is that, God, is that David's glory is the exact opposite. He's the exact opposite of, of, of this. God is not vanity, God is rather the truth. He is not leasing, he is not deceit. And therefore the following of the Lord is not a love of vanity, nor a seeking after leasing, but it's a love of God who is all and in all who made all and is to become our all in all. And when we seek after him, what do we find? We find salvation for our souls for eternity. We find salvation in the Lord and we get to know the Lord. We have a relationship with the Lord. We have a, an eternal father. We have a glorious comforter and we have the redeemer forever and ever. We have, we have him who knows of no end. There's nothing more substantial than God himself. Although we as creatures of, of material and, and of dust and ashes think that you know, real material is, is solid because we see it and feel it. But in reality the eternal spirit who is God is the only who is, who is forever upon his throne. He has not been created. He is the creating uh, God, the creating spirit. And there's nothing more solid and true uh, than he is. The psalmist's closet and then the psalmist's conflict. Moving uh, on to verse 3, and we see the psalmist's consideration. 
as he moves on from these thoughts that they've called his glory shame. And then he goes on to reveal more about his glorious Savior. He says, but know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. So, as I've mentioned, they, they mock his religion, they mock God, they mock him calling upon God. And he goes on to contradict them. As he considers a, a, a couple of uh, very comforting doctrines revealed in, in, this, in this verse, he says, But know that the Lord hath set apart for him that is godly for himself. I, w- I would suggest we see the, the choosing of God, the electing work of God, that he has chosen unto himself those that, who, uh, him that is godly. So that does not mean that God looks... This is not an Arminian verse because they don't exist in the Bible. But this is not a verse that, uh, that, that, that promotes the idea that God looks at our behavior and says, right, that one's godly, I will choose him for myself. No, the evidence that God has elected you is that he's elected you unto what? Unto holiness. That is the point uh, of, of election. And if I just briefly examine Paul's words in Ephesians one, he says that exactly in Ephesians 1 and verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That verse is, is really reflected in this. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. So we're, we're elected, we're saved unto holiness. Something we actually looked at uh, on the Lord's day. Uh, Lord's Day's preaching also. But besides that, it also points to, I would suggest, uh, predestination unto adoption. Because it says, the Lord will hear when I call unto him. So he has a confidence that his heavenly Father will be hearing his prayer. He, as his child, has a confidence that he can approach the throne of his heavenly Father at all times and, and have that confidence that he will be heard. He doesn't use the word Father. Uh, but the second, the following verse in Ephesians 1, again moves straight on in that same order and says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And however much that David understood, we, we can understand this more, uh, the depth thereof at least, with the light that we have of the New Testament. But we may know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. We see that the work of sanctification, making godly, uh, taking place in the lives of those that call upon him. And that gives us that confidence because if we understand anything of salvation we understand we have the work of regeneration immediately with that is justification and therefore immediately also with that we have adoption and therefore begins the whole life of sanctification some people try to spread uh, that that order of salvation far out apart to make it into something of time but it is not of time and those that say it it is of time air it is logic is that the Lord regenerates you, and if he's regenerated you, 
then he's caused you to repent and believe. And as soon as faith has been worked in your heart by the Spirit, you are immediately justified. And in being immediately justified, there is nothing that would hinder God from adopting you because you're found in Christ, washed by Christ, covered in Christ's righteousness, and therefore you are adopted. And from that moment on, as the work of regeneration has taken place, the continuing work of the Spirit in you is called sanctification. So we've seen the, um, the psalmist's closet, his conflict, his consideration, and we move on to see his command. So on the basis of his own relationship that he's now rebuking them with, I, I have a relationship with God. Uh, you mockers of true religion, I have a relationship with him. He has saved me, he set me apart, he answers my prayer. And so he says to them, his command to them in verse 4 is, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. We might use the common modern word, and shut up, keep silent. We could say Selah. Selah, we'll come to that Selah in a second. I've tried to keep this very brief, but there is much in all of these, uh, these various points. But I'd like just to skim over um, so we have a more of an overview of the psalm. So he says a number of things to them. He says that there's a stand and fear God. Stand in awe. They are to fear in God. Uh, and as we looked at on the Lord's Day, the, the very idea of fear is, is, is to bring us to an end of ourselves that we would stop sinning, that we would repent and sin not. Stand in awe and sin not. So stand and fear God. Stop sinning. And then he says, examine yourselves. Stop, stop looking at me. Stop mocking me and my religion and my feebleness, we could say. But examine yourself. Commune with your own heart upon your bed. Communing with your own heart then, is what's so special about the bed? Well, in the sense that you tend to be quiet at night on your own. You're not, you haven't got people uh, around you uh, per se, maybe, maybe your wife. But I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment of silence when you're not distracted that you can examine your own heart. Is your heart right before God and be still? We could link that with the phrase in the Scriptures, be still and know that I am God. And that's really what's, what, what David is encouraging these, these godless mockers to do, is to be still, to have silence. Selah. And so we here we have, therefore, if we want to bring those two selahs together, is, is to see the contrast. So he's, he, he's, he, he's saying that they turn his glory into shame and that they love vanity, that they seek after deceit and lies in verse 2. And, and, and this is his answer to them. Those that seek lies and, and love vanity, he says, stand in awe, stand and fear God, stop your sinning, examine your own heart and conscience and, and be quiet with your mocking. That would be the context of it. Selah brings us then into, into verse 5, which I'll include in this point, because essentially he says you must have faith. He says you must believe. In fact, he says believe in two different, 
uh, ways in the Hebrew, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Now we could say in the Old Testament context that they are indeed, they could offer actual sacrifices um, and doing so in faith would be a sacrifice of righteousness. But I think if we want to take it in in its fullest spiritual understanding that you are to repent and believe. You are to repent, you are to bring the sacrifices of righteousness which is repentance and put your trust in the Lord. Again, we have that expression which we would say believe in the Lord would be the Greek uh, way of expressing it, but put your trust in the Lord is the Hebrew way of saying the self-same thing. Trust him and trust yourself to him. Have faith in him. Believe his word. Believe his warnings. Repent and believe. He brings the gospel, David, to those people that mocked him. He's not praying for fire to come down from heaven upon them, uh, but he's receiving a boldness to turn round and, and speak the gospel to them. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. So that's his command. And we move on fifthly to his comfort, the psalmist's comfort. And that brings us to verses 6 and 7. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. So we see there's a a question uh, to discourage. Who will show us any good? Where would we find any good in this life? Who will show us any good at all? And maybe this is, again, this is an idea because he says there are many that say this, referring maybe to the sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame, etc. But also in in more general uh, understanding that there's a question discouraged. Who will show us any good? Will your, will your God look after you, David? Will your God answer you, uh, believer? And we see, yeah, there could be discouragement in there. But it could also be a question of unbelief because they're not looking to the Lord for the goodness in this life. They're not looking with any look of hope unto Jehovah. So they will say, who will show us any good? Well, here's David's answer. Lord, lift up the light of thy countenance upon us. In fact, we could say that's more than an answer. It's also a petition. So they say, who will show us any good? And David's answer is to make a petition to the, to the giver of all good and perfect gifts. Lord, lift up thy countenance. Lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. And again, we can make many connections with this countenance, the countenance of the Lord. This is the same countenance that we understand in the blessing of Aaron in, uh, in Numbers 6, in verses 24, 25, and 26, where the plea has been made to the Lord 
that he would, he would lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But even, even before then, it talks about the Lord's face being lifted towards you. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. There we have that, that, that glorious countenance. And be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. What's the difference between face and countenance? Um, in Hebrew, it's the same word. Um, essentially, it is the same thing. Subtle difference, countenance is an expression upon the face. And the face is the, the face itself. But who will show us any good, Lord, lift thou, thou, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. So we understand, written in the time of David, say about a thousand, um, thousand B.C. And then what we read in Numbers there would be about 1400 plus B.C. So this was a phrase that was known to David. And, and no doubt he was thinking upon that blessing uh, that they would receive from, from the high priest at those various times and seasons of worship. And so he's considering that. He's considering the benediction that he would know. And, and he's praying about it. And then he, in verse 7, he talks about the answer to it. He talks about what, what the blessed countenance actually gives. And he says, Thou hast put gladness, we could say joy, in my heart, more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. Again, we have this contrast that the Lord by his grace has given, has given joy, he's given gladness in our hearts in spite of our problems, more than they have when they see... It doesn't actually talk about... It merely talks about the time that their corn and their wine increased. Now that word increase can mean two things. It could talk about the growth of the corn and the wine, or it could talk about uh, the harvest, when the harvest has been brought in and, and the, the, the store houses are filled, uh, and of course wine is created, made, and is just increased in abundance. Uh, in whatever they're still putting, whatever it is, they're still putting their hope on the physical gifts of God. They're looking, at the, the, they're looking at the gifts and putting their hope upon the gifts. And so they're looking to the giver of the gifts. And that's what David is. He's looking to the, to the giver of the gifts. He's looking at spiritual blessings, physical blessings as well. But Lord, thou hast put gladness in my heart more than those. Let's just take it for harvest time. More than those who have an abundant harvest, that have all this grain and have all these uh, harvest festivals and, uh, and parties and have all this wine that they're drinking, that my joy is more than the joy of all of their filled storehouses ready for the winter and all the, the, the amphors uh, of wine that they have and that they're drinking. My joy is not based upon a full belly and a full goblet of wine. It's based upon what the Lord gives me and feeds me. It's not disparaging the blessings of harvest time. It's saying my gladness in my heart that thou hast put is greater, it's more than, that they have only in that time of blessing. I have blessing upon blessing. And then we close with this. We've seen the psalmist's closet, the psalmist's conflict, the psalmist's consideration, the psalmist's command, the psalmist's comfort, and we close then with the psalmist's contentment. 
verse 8, And I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. So we see serenity. The serenity that the, the child of God has in his or her relationship with the Lord of blessings that are greater than earthly blessings. They include earthly blessings, but they are far greater. They are eternal blessings. But they're blessings to the soul and blessings to the conscience because I will lay me down in peace. I have peace in my soul. I have, there is peace between me and God because he is the God of my righteousness. And he, he hears me when I call upon him. He has elected me. He has adopted me. I do put my trust in the Lord. I do offer the sacrifices of righteousness. And the Lord has put that blessed gladness in my heart. And I will lay me down in peace. I will lay me down in peace. I'll lie down in my bed, not fearing to die that night. Not fearing the wrath of God because there is no wrath anymore. But the love of God is... Is fully uh, toward me. So I have a serenity in laying down in my bed, but I also get this from the Lord. I obtain sleep. I will both lay me down in peace and I will have full and sweet sleep. Now this is a general rule. There's, of course, there are times when the child of God will be robbed of sleep. We see that elsewhere in the Psalms that David himself talks about that, that, that his bed is wet with tears so, I mean, this is not talking every single night, but this is, a, this is a truth that the child of God can sleep in peace and obtain a good night's sleep because there is peace between him and God and because God looks after him. Because God is not his enemy. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. It's not me relying upon the filled storehouses. It's not me relying upon wine to rock me to sleep. But it's Lord, thou only makest me dwell in safety. He's putting his trust in the Lord even at night. And when you can't be attentive, David, a warrior, warrior king, could lie down, his sword in the sheath, lay down probably next to his bed. But he could go to sleep because there was a, a greater king and a greater warrior that watches over his soul and over his life. For thou, Lord, makest me dwell in safety. And I think that's an important verse to take with us. If you ever do wake up in the middle of the night, and maybe you're stressed about something, you're fretting about something that you have in your life, you may be worried about a meeting or a presentation or an exam on the next day. And remember Psalm 4 and verse 8. Because of God's Kindness and gracious election and saving and all of his wonderful works. Because God has declared you righteous, having forgiven you your sins. That because he makes you dwell in safety, that you can lie down peacefully in your bed and enjoy a sweet sleep. He gives his children sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. What a contrast then. With the godless that are putting their hopes on things which are fleeting and have no peace with God. Their, their consciences, if they're even unseared still, 
uh, are not at peace with the Lord. And may the Lord bless uh, this psalm to us. May we make use of it in those night times when we do wake up and let us be encouraged and read and believe all of these verses, especially verse 8, for our own comfort at night. Amen.